From the Wilkes Center for Climate Science and Policy at the University of Utah, I'm Ross Chambliss, and we're talking climate. For this week's podcast, we're doing something somewhat new and exciting. A few months ago, the U Rising podcast, one of our sister podcasts here at the U, interviewed Nicholas Witham, a fifth-year biomedical engineering PhD student here at the U. And Witham received first place in the Wilkes Student Innovation Prize competition that was announced at the Climate Summit back in May. And we thought this would be a fantastic way to cap off our series of interviews with all of the winners of the 2023 Wilkes Student Innovation Prize competition and to share one of the many great interviews coming from the U Rising podcast. We will, of course, be putting a link to that show here in the show notes and we'll be reposting the interview in its entirety on our podcast page. In this episode from U Rising, Nick Witham speaks with host Chris Nelson about how his work on building advanced prosthetic limbs actually led to an idea for a technology that could use artificial muscles to generate energy. So at this point, I'm handing it off to Chris Nelson. research innovations and key initiatives taking place at the University of Utah. I'm Chris Nelson, host of this episode and Chief University Relations Officer. I'm excited to have Nicholas Witham as my guest today to talk about receiving first place in the Wilkes Student Innovation Prize competition awarded by the U's Wilkes Center for Climate Science and Policy in May. Nick is a fifth-year biomedical engineering PhD student at the U. His focus is the intersection of mechatronics, electrical instrumentation, and material science. In practice, that means he's researching and developing high-performance sensors and actuators for assistive devices that are intuitive, affordable, and accessible. Nick has applied textile engineering methods to improve operations of both prosthetic limbs and renewable energy generators, which we'll hear more about in this episode. Welcome to You Rising, Nick. Thank you. It's a lot of, a lot of words I haven't said in a long time, so that's quite an introduction. But uh, let's talk with your background. Your bachelor's degree is from the University of North Carolina, so... Talk about that experience and then what brought you to Utah to pursue your uh, master and doctoral degrees. Yeah, so I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I studied biomedical engineering there. I didn't quite know exactly what I wanted to do until I started with this club slash nonprofit that 3D printed hands for kids with limb differences. Uh, So born with different limbs. So they need prosthetics and they're not covered by insurance. And while I was working on that and trying to make those hands better, I found out that I, one, was really good at it, and two, really liked it. So I started doing research in labs there. They told me that if I wanted to pursue neuroprosthetics, which turns out I have a lot of interest in but no skill for, to come to the University of Utah. So I applied and, yeah, sort of fell into it. Excellent. Uh, Had you heard much about Utah before you came out here, or was that just kind of a gamble you took? Not at all. So, yes, my old boss, my old PI, Helen Huang, she suggested that I apply, but I said, no, uh, there's no reason. My parents convinced me to do it. I've already applied to all these other colleges. And there it was, right in the middle, 
finals, I got accepted and they had this recruitment weekend where you would go skiing. So skipping finals and going skiing, it was a pretty easy decision. And I came out and I was more than happy with everything out here. Yeah, it was just a beautiful place and great facilities. You know, I know Utah's got a reputation, uh, the university around, you know, the Luke Arm, as we call it, and a lot of the the prosthetic uh, work going on here. Did that play a role in your decision to come out here? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's crazy, the work that Jake George and Greg Clark have accomplished, making prosthetics feel for amputees. It's incredible. I mean, If you lost a hand, that'd be something that you'd expect in this day and age, you know. And in terms of prosthetics, you know, just being able to accomplish something so groundbreaking is inspiring. There's also a lot of osseointegration work. So that's like making prosthetics part of your actual arm, like it's part of your bone. Incredible. And you may not know this, but the world's largest producer of prosthetics has its American headquarters right here in the Salt Lake area, Autobach. And one of the challenges with, with the current technologies is just not being used by folks. And so using this technology just to, to make the products better. Yeah, yeah. So the way I relate it to people is, well, in my own personal journey, I discovered, you know, when I was working with those kids, 3D printing hands, you know, we'd be literally giving them to them for free, cutting edge stuff, and they wouldn't be used. And it turns out this problem goes all the way to the top. So advanced prosthetics that costs as much as a Tesla Model Y, 50% of the time, they just end up collecting dust on a shelf for a myriad of reasons. And I always say that's like the population of Salt Lake City, each owning a Tesla that they never use. That's wild. You know, that's a big problem. So let's get to your your project. So you pitched your climate solutions idea at the inaugural summit hosted by the Wilkes Climate Center for Climate Science and Policy and received the top $20,000 prize. So congratulations. Tell us about your idea, which is titled, and I quote, Renewable Energy and Carbon Capture with Thermomotive Biopolymer Textiles. Now, we may have lost some of our audience as I read that, but uh, break that down for us. Well, first off, I was always told, make those titles as long and complicated as possible. (laughs) Uh, basically, I research artificial muscles made out of fishing line. When you heat them up, they contract and exert a force. And the great thing is, is that every day the earth heats up and cools down, which would make them contract. And we could then use that contraction to spin a generator. And it was one late night in the lab. And I decided, you know, maybe these numbers make sense. Maybe this could be less expensive than solar. So I started cranking the numbers out, talked to my boss, and here we are. Was that based on the the award that you saw from the climate science, or did that come after? Like, what, what prompted you thinking that thought even? A lot of what I do has to do with the performance characteristics of these artificial muscles. So we are concerned with their efficiency, their power-to-mass ratio, which is also called specific work. You don't need to know any of this, but we look at their viability as a new tool, as a new technology for prosthetics. You know, we have to assess user needs in biomedical engineering. So it all seemed to click pretty instantly. Interesting. I learned a new word, biomimetics. Explain that to us. Biomimetics is the attempt of engineers to mimic biology. Uh, So it encompasses a large number of things. To me, making my artificial muscles biomimetic means making them pull with the right force over their area and making them contract the right amount so they can actually mimic human muscle. 
Let me ask it this way. So again, you're, you're working with prosthetic limbs and exoskeletons in your research, and you just, you just saw that connection back to, um, to climate. That's just, it's so interesting to me. It's, it's into the mind of our PhD students a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm making a tool. I'm making a technology. And, you know, as an engineer, you get curious. And I think following your creativity is just something you always have to do in any field. So when I have an idea and it's crazy, I want to see how crazy it actually is. And this one shocked me that it wasn't. Nice. So talk about this approach. So it's better than, is it, it's comparable, it's better than existing renewable energy sources like solar and wind? Well, right now it's still a concept, uh, except for the performance characteristics of these artificial muscles. Those are already published. And our manufacturing method was published yesterday, actually, uh, in a textile research journal. I see a lot of potential benefits. Uh, so compared to solar, there's no e-waste with these, so the system is entirely recyclable. Another advantage is that you can combine it with existing renewable energy generation units. So let's say you have a solar field or a wind turbine field. You could put these in that same field and use the same cables and infrastructure on this to decrease the total price of the energy coming out. Uh, another benefit is lower maintenance than wind and solar. Turbines are meant to spin very fast. There's no external moving parts. Unlike solar, you know, you put it in the desert, and yes, it gets covered in sand, and yes, it gets scratched by that dust, but you don't have to replace these panels. It's just a big black box in the middle of the desert. And lastly, I'd like to mention that you can make these actuators uh, with bio-derived plastics. So you can turn corn husks into this, and that becomes an indirect form of carbon capture. So the way that chemistry works is that carbon molecule in CO2, it accounts for most of the mass, like 68% or something mm -hmm. like that. And most of the mass of our polymer is also carbon. So it works out that you can store three kilograms of CO2 and one kilogram of our polymer, uh, which means that it becomes more and more cost-effective than other carbon capture technologies and can even turn a profit at a certain point. And you may have mentioned this, but where are you at in development? This is still kind of theoretical. Do you have some prototypes? Yeah. Where are we at? Yeah. Uh, well, I have plenty of prototypes of my muscles, and we test them in these environmental conditions every day between 20 Celsius room temperature and 60 Celsius. So that's, that's my typical range I test. And we're working to make them more energy efficient all the time. In terms of the core technology and being able to make an actuator perform with the right characteristics, we're on it. In terms of putting a unit in the Moab desert, that's still like a year out. For someone listening to this who doesn't have a, a bioengineering background, break down how this technology works. The goal for a energy generation unit is to make uh, AC power. So turbines have to spin at a certain speed to make the right frequency of that AC power. The way wind turbines account for that uh, is in one of two ways. The first way is by turning it into a DC power, then back into AC, but that's largely inefficient. You use like you lose like 30% of your power doing that. The other way is with this fancy technology called a doubly fed induction generator. What the heck is that? <laughs> I don't even know. But uh, what it does is it allows you to have a variable speed of rotation of your generator producing that same AC frequency and it's more efficient. So we're stealing different technologies from existing renewable energies to support this. So in fact, our generator is a wind turbine generator. Uh, that's what we've selected for this. Then it's just about 
figuring out how long of an artificial muscle to make so it can pull at the right rate for that temperature change, which is called the rate of diurnal temperature change. Okay. It's a big word, but it just means how much does the planet heat up in a day. So I think the wind turbine is those giant ones I find when I'm driving through yeah. southern Utah. So are we talking that side and the, the generator part of that? Yeah. Uh, so there's smaller wind turbines. There's okay. personal use ones. So that's what we were thinking for our initial unit. Uh, and they're really actually quite fun because you can just find one on Alibaba or something. Gotcha. Yeah, it's more accessible. And a dumb question, but do they need to be in a particular place? And Do they work better in mm. certain places other than other places? Yeah. So the thing about diurnal temperature change is it is larger in higher altitude places mm. that are very arid. So Utah is a great candidate. Arizona is a great candidate. In fact, I, I ran the numbers to figure out the portion of the U.S. that this is applicable for, and it's something like 68% of the land area. But that's since California has so many people and Texas has so many people in it, uh, it really accounts for like 75% of the U.S. population. So down the road, you know, I think of I think of the solar panel farms. I think of the wind turbine farms. Is this a similar concept? I would come across a field uh, with some of these things. Yeah, I think it would look a lot more like a shipyard because okay. these would very likely be in shipping containers. Our potential unit weighs less than one of those maximally, so you could still ship them with existing transportation methods. And I'm still I'm really trying to get my brain around. The artificial muscle. No, it's a twisted coiled polymer actuator. So twisted coiled polymer actuator. Describe that for a listening audience. What does that look like? It looks like a piece of string that has been coiled, uh, which is kind of boring. And the way it works is... Artificial muscle is much more interesting. Yeah. 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 And the term is very buzzy. You know, do most artificial muscles actually work like muscles? No. Most don't even actually contract. I'd call them springs. But uh, gotcha. okay, good. good to yeah, the way that these work is the fact that it's a twisted polymer. So if you just have a twisted polymer fiber and it has certain characteristics, it wants to untwist when you heat it up. And this is true of nylon fishing line, linear low density polyethylene, many, many materials. But when you coil that, it makes it want to contract. And that puzzled a lot of us for like half a decade. And we have a running theory that it's basically like a a helical spring, but in reverse. So when you stretch a spring, it actually manifests a torque on either end. And I think I have a little cat toy in my backpack to show this to people because nobody believes you. But let's say, you know, that spring manifested its own torque, then it would contract. It's just a spring, but backwards. All right. So, Nick, you mentioned... The cat toy to kind of illustrate how these artificial muscles work. I did want to ask you to get the cat toy out and just just you know just just walk me through that. So you've you've put this toy on the table behind us. To me, it looks it's blue. It looks like a spring. It's about three or four inches. So yeah, yeah it's a blue spring. You got it right. So if you stretch I'm very it, observant. Yeah, if you yeah. stretch it, I want you to clamp down on the ends. Okay, I'm clamping down on the that? ends. Yeah. So other than a force coming between your fingers. Do you feel it like wanting to twist? Oh, interesting. Yeah, it kind of reminds me when you play with a slinky a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like it, it's twisting in your hands, right? Mm-hmm. Well, just imagine that the material itself wants to do that twisting. It'd move in the same way. Gotcha. So it's a spring in reverse. Excellent. And that's generating energy and... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's torsional energy. So the thermal energy turns into torsional energy. 
torsional energy turns into tensile, and then moving a mass is the energy output. Interesting. Interesting. So you've launched a new startup company, Gaia Technologies. You've already received some recognition. Tell us about tell us about this venture. Yeah. So Gaia Technologies is something I've been working on for quite a few years now. Our goal is to restore function with innovation. Our flagship product is a biosensor array. What's that? It's a sensor that measures biology. And this array, this, these sensors, uh, they measure how a muscle gets fatter when it contracts. And our signal seems to be much lower noise, uh, more directly uh, in line with the length of the muscle, which is important for positional control of prosthetics. And from those two, we think we can get force. That said, we are venturing into new things uh, outside of prosthetics and outside of just sensors. Uh, our newest invention that we're working on, it, we call it a pseudotelepathy headset. Okay, explain that. Yeah, so it's it's a buzzword technology because we want to get traction, but uh, it's based on some pretty solid science. So when you think of saying a word, you can even feel it in your neck. Your throat still twitches when you're thinking of saying a word. Uh, you can probably feel this best if you think about yelling really loudly. Mm-hmm. Well, our sensors are very, very accurate and very precise, so they can measure that twitch. And then it's just a matter of using AI technology to stitch them together. So our approach is to decode individual sounds into the components of words, which are known as phonemes, and the prosodic information, which is the space between words. It's the enunciation. It's how you tell a joke, you know? And the volume. So we are designing this headset for people that are able-bodied and for people who have dysarthria, which is a weakness of their vocal cords. So think Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. So they can speak real time oh. and they're a chosen voice without having to utter a word. Interesting. So the, so the voice would be artificially generated. So you can voice bank. Okay. Voice banking is okay. an existing technology uh, that people use for progressive disorders such as ALS and MS. So probably not paralysis, depends on the type. But, you know, an average person could do that pretty easily. So back to the Wilkes uh, Prize, uh, the $20,000. So is that, is that through the will, – will that help do stuff in the, in the company or is that a separate project uh, through, the, through the lab? Yeah, so the way that $20,000 is being spent is I'm, I'm buying a ring for my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was the first thing. You know, I got my priorities. Um, but, of course, you know, we're going to roll it into all these different projects and get them up and going. But it's not quite enough to pay anybody a paycheck. So is she a fiancé yet? Or? <laughs> no, no. Still have to go home for the okay. family diamond. Is she a scientist? No. Okay. Uh, she's a social worker. She works at the Children's Center. Wonderful. So take me back into the lab, though. So I think one of the audiences I know we've got are folks who are just trying to figure out what, what happens at the University of Utah. So we talk about all the things that go on up here. And so as a PhD student in a biomedical engineering lab, what does your day look like? What was that? You know, I think a lot of people think of, you know, I'm in class, great, I'm in the lab, but just walk us through that. You know, if you're talking to a 16 or 17-year-old version of you, you know, how would you kind of articulate what's to come? Well, it changes over time. It's a very dynamic position. So my first few years here, they were spent, you know, doing courses just like my undergrad. But, you know, they were far less relevant than I wanted them to be. But I I had more choice to pick. So it was like, what am I doing wrong? Uh, But I feel like everybody has that sort of thing. Like you're trying to pursue something and it's ephemeral and you don't know what it is. And I was doing a lot of literature reviews. You know, I was reading a lot of papers 
and I was trying to reproduce them and I was contacting those authors and I was talking to my boss a lot about my theories and, you know, what I wanted to accomplish with my PhD. You know, what three papers do you want to write? That's typically how it's phrased here at U of U is you have to write three papers and each of those three papers have three separate experiments, three figures that you show. So, you know, what nine experiments do you want to do and what impact do you want to have? But recently, you know, post-COVID, post-having all the equipment and all the experiments done, uh, most of my time is spent, you know, working with my undergrads to get them up to snuff, uh, new grad students to set the expectations and help them along, and to actually write the papers and do the data analysis and all the programming stuff. So actually applying what you learn is the second half of your PhD. And it's some of the hardest part, you know, because it's always different. There's no PhD that's alike. Yeah. And somehow in all that, you still found time to apply this to a, a climate solution, which is just really impressive. Yeah, you got to follow, you know, your creativity to stay motivated. I, I think a lot of people lose sight of that. So you're a fifth-year PhD student. Uh, when are you going to graduate, and what's next? Do you, do you stay in Utah? Are you going to go back to North Carolina? What's, what's... Yeah, I'm planning to graduate within the next six months. You know, uh, it's not entirely my own decision. Uh, you know, I have a committee of people that give me the degree or don't. But afterwards, I'm planning to continue my postdoc, and all the things are lined up for that. So the postdoc is like a PhD, but you're just doing more work, but not a professor. <laughs> it's somewhere in between. And to have my co company take off has always been a dream. So we'll see how that goes. Wonderful. How, so tell me about the company a little more. So it's, is it, how many people have you got working there? Yeah. So legally I would call none of us employees. Um, sure. Yeah. So we don't. Caveat there. We, we aren't paid. Um, everybody's a volunteer, but that doesn't mean that we don't reward people with equity and we don't have value as a company. So we had three main founders and tons of people that have come through and left. You know, the process of launching a company is one of those things I always wanted to learn. And there's no better way to learn than doing. And at U of U, you know, it's like top five in the nation in entrepreneurship. And I've absolutely saw that I had to take advantage of that learning opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we talk, you know, we, we've talked to other entrepreneurs. So, but really your, your research innovation came first and you kind of got that entrepreneurial bug to make yeah. it more practical. A little yeah. Bit. Yeah. That came from all my professors and mentors over the years. They kept saying over and over because, you know, I'm an engineer. If you want to have an impact, you have to make something that'll sell. Because, you know, we live in a capitalist society and people won't get it otherwise. Uh, so, you know, you have to consider all the economic and business factors. And I really took that to heart. Nice. Well, Nick, thank you again for being on You Rising. Congratulations on your success. And I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming next out of your, your lab and your, and your company. So listeners, that's it for today's episode of You Rising. Our executive producer is Brooke Adams, and our technical producer is Robert Nelson. As a reminder, you can find You Rising on all streaming platforms. And that's it for this week's episode of Talking Climate. We'll be back next week with another interview with a researcher working on cutting-edge climate science technology and research here at the University of Utah. Take care. Take care.